Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is September 11th, 2018, and today is the inaugural edition of the Tuesday Morning Quarterback with Greg Easterbrook. Greg, welcome back. Uh, good to be here, Charlie. Well, it is uh, it is September 11th, so before we get to this piece, uh, and it is, it is, as usual, a... Uh, how would you describe it? It's uh, it's like a buffet, about five thousand words, about a you know, about two thirds of it about football, a third of it about uh, culture, politics, whatever. Yeah, how, how, do you, how do you describe it? It's eclectic. It's kind of it, it's basically whatever's on my mind, and and I can take some small amount of credit for starting this format of whatever's on your mind, which is now very common on the internet uh, long before it was common. When, when T- Tuesday Morning Quarterback began, it was viewed as sui generis, and it's gone from being sui generis to being a really common internet format. But I think I was there first, or I was one of the first anyway. Well, speaking of what's on our mind, it is September 11th, you know, and as I, w- I wake up today, it's been 17 years, and every year I, I, I wonder well, is this the year where we put it behind us, where we don't, you know, have the discussion about where were we that morning, et, et cetera? And obviously, 17 years later, it still seems so raw. And also, we're having this anniversary of, you know, the 10-year anniversary of the uh, of the collapse of of Lehman Brothers. And I guess the thing that was on my mind, Greg, and I wanted to see what you thought about it is, you know, you know have we ever do we ever learn anything as a society or a culture? Let's start with 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 nine eleven. You look back at nine eleven and that moment that took place afterwards where the country seemed we were under the impression that we were united, and that lasted about five minutes. So did we learn anything from nine eleven? well, do we do we want unification to come from horrible tragedies? Charlie, I have three kids. And I remember saying to them on 9-11, and it is hard to believe it was 17 years ago, I hope that this is the worst thing that happens in your lifetime. And that's kind of still how I look at it. If 9-11 is the worst thing that happens in our lifetimes, it will still and always be terrible. But if it's the worst thing and, and other events are not worse, when 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 I look at when whenever I contemplate this, I think the thing that we don't know is it is what would have happened had it not been for the response to 9/11 that that's still just a total unknown mm-hmm. we, have, we have these long running terrible wars in Afghanistan and Iraq both both now rivaling the length of the second Peloponnesian war and we we know that the United States had a, a every nation accepts that the United States had a legitimate self defense reason to attack Afghanistan after mm-hmm. 9-11. We still don't know why we attacked Iraq. We have these two long-running, endless, forever wars. And have those wars prevented another 9-11-like event? Or would there never have been another 9-11-like event? We just don't know. And Yeah, we don't. Well, you you, you ask, actually, a, a very provocative question. Because we have uh, endless debates now about how divided we are, how tribal our politics are. And and I'm one of those who, I think you're more optimistic than I am about these things. I, I, I think that everything that's uh, that's happening that is bad is going to get worse, that as we become you know, more polarized and pull back into our corners, 
you know, the, you know, the, the, the question, well, how do we get that sense of unity? How do we break the fever? And, and, you know, in the back of my mind, I am thinking maybe it does take some, some external disaster to shake us up, to change this particular dynamic. And, but your point is obviously correct that we, we don't want that to happen. Um, you know, we, you, you can't wish for some sort of a catastrophe, but short of something like 9-11, it's hard to see how we sort of break the fever. Although 9-11, despite that, that moment, didn't break our partisan divide. In fact, if we think we were divided in 2001, it is nothing compared to what we have right now. I mean, we thought that our politics were toxic, and yet 17 years later, we're more at each other's throat than we ever have been, or at least since the 1960s. Oh, there's, we shouldn't romanticize the past, Charlie. There's always been a lot of partisanship in the politics of every nation. Go, go back and look at the United States before World War One, and my my gosh, the intensity of the vitriol directed at, at, at the two immigrant groups arriving at that time, Germans and Italians, now they're, now they're established in directing vitriol at others. But it's real common, not just in our history, but in the history of nearly every nation to have partisan bickering. That's the nature of politics. I don't think we should romanticize the past, and I don't think you should get me started on the question of how <laughs> the current generation is in much better shape than people understand, since, since of course, I've just published a book on that very topic, which I'd be happy to hold the floor on. Now, the title of the book is? is It's Better Than It Looks, which argues that, that the condition of both the United States and almost all, though certainly not all, of the world is much better than generally understood. Now, see, this is the kind of book that I need. Because I, this is the this is the antidote that we need to uh, to this this sense. And yeah, it, we we have been divided in the past. The question is whether or you know what's old and what's new. And I, I'm always trying to figure that out. Uh, you know, partisan division, um, you know, xenophobia, all of those things, you know, are you know have have been have, you know been constants in American history and perhaps world history. The question is whether we've created an environment now where it's going to spin out of control. And I, I, I have not yet read your book. I really do want to. Well, the other anniversary that we have to figure whether we learned anything about was the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And for reasons that have nothing to do with the anniversary, I just I, I just the other night I watched, you know, Too Big to Fail, the movie and a movie called Margin Call, which talk about the the financial collapse. And if you had to put a an, another pin in in a moment where you know, trust was violated. It might be that financial collapse. And I really do wonder, even more so than 9-11, whether we learned anything from all of that or whether or not we're blithely heading back into, uh, you know, in, in into a sort of you know reckless economic period in which we have a you know handful of too big to fail uh, oligarchs who are determining what happens to the rest of us. Well, again, Charlie, we shouldn't romanticize the past. Capitalist economies, and I'm a capitalist, or at least I'm a free market advocate. I think most people should be. Those types of economies are cyclical. They go boom and bust. In recent generations, the busts have been less destructive than busts of the past. So maybe that's some kind of positive trend. As for Lehman Brothers, how can you feel any sympathy for investment? Oh, zero. Zero. Right, yeah. No, I mean that's that's part of my you know looking back on it to realize how reckless and uh, how reckless they were and uh, how how predictable it was and 
I, I actually wrote a book at the time called uh, A Nation of Moochers, which I went back right. and was looking looking at uh, last night and realized how aggressively populist the tone was about, you know, are you serious, you people, that that, that we should actually feel bad about uh, Goldman Sachs or Lehman or any of those others? Well, let's uh, let's talk about uh, the, the Tuesday morning quarterback. And uh, you had a piece last week where you said this might be we might be entering the last great season of the NFL. Talk to me about why you think this might be the last great season. Well, I'm mainly an optimist. I think the sociology of the world is much better than people generally understand. Most people are better off today than in any past generation. But I think the NFL is about to go downhill because not because of head injuries, although that's a big concern, not because of high schools dropping out, but because of gambling. The mm-hmm. NFL is is dipping its toes into gambling, and it's about to jump into bed with gambling when the when the Raiders move to Las Vegas. The NBA and 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 the NHL have already formally endorsed gambling on professional sports. The NFL is very close to it, and once gambling becomes allowed, maybe people like to gamble. Maybe they'll enjoy watching the NFL to see how their bets work out. But I, people will also think that the games are fixed and the integrity of the sport, such as it is, will be lost. And if the game is fixed, why should you watch? Why should you care? And I think that's coming. How does the whole uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling controversy play into all of this? Well, I, I've I, I've said from the beginning, and I, I don't know what your feelings on this are, Charlie, but, but Kaepernick, Certainly, if he wanted to kneel, why not? You can't say we want to protect the First Amendment and freedom of speech and then get upset if somebody exercises freedom of speech. If Kaepernick or any NFL player wants to exercise his freedom of speech, I think we should be happy about that. But we should also always just bear in mind that freedom of speech, First Amendment rights, are the freedom to speak. They're not the freedom to be exempt from the consequences of your speech. And I, I think Kaepernick's handling the consequences of his speech pretty nicely. You know, I, uh, I was talking about this last night on a, on a, on a public radio show. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me is first of all, um, you know, how, how, uh, you know, president Trump has really weaponized this and this is clearly working for him, but also one of the things that's gotten lost is the, is the fact that, and I'm not a big fan of Colin Kaepernick and I want to make that clear, but, uh, the, his decision to kneel, you know, came after one, you know, a fellow player whose name was escaping me at the moment, you know, a former Green Beret told him that, you know, sitting during the national anthem was disrespectful and that kneeling was a sign of respect. And, and, you know, when you, when you think about it, if you go to church, you kneel at the most sacred moments. I can't think of any other time when kneeling is regarded as somehow an act of disrespect. But that part of it has gotten gotten lost, I think. Um, and I, I certainly don't think that the NFL has figured out how they're going to handle all of this. You know, they could have taken a strong stand in favor of uh, respectful dissent. Um, but uh, apparently they're they're kind of blown around by this. Oh, I totally agree with you, Charlie. Uh, if Kaepernick or any player was laughing during the anthem or not mm-hmm. paying attention or talking on the phone, that would be one thing. But kneeling in silence is a respectful gesture. And I, I think this goes to the racial subtext of the game. Uh, most of the players are African-American. And the fact that a black guy is kneeling 
upsets the white guys in the audience in a way that you wouldn't get the same reaction if it was a if it was a white guy kneeling. I, I, I think that's in a, the racial subtext is inescapable. You know, uh, right before we went on the air, I, I told you what, what I always find fascinating is in, we we're talking about uh, your, your your piece, the Tuesday morning quarterback, which we're going to be doing every week now on on Tuesday through the NFL season. It's always remarkable um, for someone who, living in Wisconsin you know, like, like like I do to realize that there there are other teams. <laughs> and that there are other games. Um, in fact, on our podcast yesterday, I made everybody you know listen to the final play of the Green Bay Packers Bear game. Um, but you start off the column this week by by noticing the you know the well, well describing the TMQ's law of comeback and and how over the weekend it held. What what is the law of comebacks? Uh, t- Tuesday morning quarterbacks' law of comebacks is that defense starts comebacks and offense starts them. So if you're interested in the Packers-Bears games, and we should, in fact, warn your listeners that there are, there's no ideological litmus test at the w- weekly standard, but there is a sports litmus test. You have to like the Packers. Yes, that's uh, true. So we like the Packers coming back against the Bears. But how did the comeback happen? Middle of the third quarter, Chicago leads 20-3 to and goes three and out because the Green Bay defense gets a quick stop. Green Bay scores a touchdown. Now it's 20 to 10. The Chicago defense, excuse me, the Green Bay defense again holds. Chicago again goes three and out. Suddenly it's 20 to seven and the league has, the lead has evaporated. All people, people like offense more than defense. Everybody focused on Aaron Rodgers throwing touchdown passes. Mm -hmm. But the key thing that started that comeback was consecutive three and outs created by the Green Bay defense if Chicago had just gotten a first down on either of those series is they would have won the game what did you make of the I, I know the answer to this but I mean what would the the decision by the uh by the Bears to go for a field goal near the end of the game when you know had they scored a touchdown uh, it would have been a two-score game by going for the field goal they really opened the door for Aaron Rodgers and the Packers to come back they didn't even need a touchdown all they needed was a first down mm-hmm. the situation for your listeners was Chicago leads 20 to 17 with a little under three minutes to play. They have fourth and two on the Green Bay 14. In order to be safe, I'm putting safe in air quotes, NFL coaches always send out the kicker so they don't get criticized in the morning. But this is a terrible decision to send out the kicker. You need two yards to win the game. You gain two yards and the game is over. You kick a field goal, you're still only ahead by six points. A a touchdown can win the game for Green Bay. And who's getting the ball? Aaron Rodgers. So what, what, which would you rather do two yards to win the game or hand the ball to Aaron Rodgers? And they chose hand the ball to Aaron Rodgers. It was a crazy decision. Yeah, I, I I could watch I could watch the highlights of that game over and over and over again. I you know like other people in Packer Nation, we wallow in this sort of thing. I also want to talk about what you have to say about the Pittsburgh Steelers. But um, before we do, I was fascinated by your section in the column about uh, fake authors, and you asked the question: if if polls and celebrities are plagiarists, why do book reviewers serve as enablers? And then you say this bestseller may be the most offensive novel ever published, not because of the content, but because of the cover. So let's just talk about this. What was the most offensive novel ever published? The most offensive novel ever published, <laughs> not Tropic of Cancer. This book should be banned in Boston. Is is the and you have to put the word novel in quotation marks. Right. 
got to put the word book in quotation marks. It's, it's an object printed on paper is all that we can really be sure of. Is the thing that came out this summer, the thriller that was signed jointly by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. It was a bestseller. Ne- uh, the cover lists two authors, so it's two fake authors, no waiting. Neither of them did any writing work on the book. Both of them had ghostwriters, and both are claiming to be what they are not, which is to say authors. And, and you say, okay, well, it's a it's a very silly thriller novel. Who cares about that? I admit, nobody cares about that. But there are serious books that have fake authors. James Comey's current book is one. All of Hillary Clinton's books fall into this category. People who are in pu- in the public eye who pretended to be authors. Being an author is highly prestigious. Charlie and I were both we're both authors, so we think mm-hmm. it's highly prestigious, right? Yeah. So people, people in the public eye who claim to be something that they are not, i.e. authors, and they do something that would cause them to get expelled from school, that is, put their name on somebody else's work. And, and you're saying, okay, well, Hillary Clinton, James Comey, all those other people, they're all phonies. That's why they do this. Why do book reviewers let them get away with this? That's my big question. Well, and it's almost assumed now that anytime somebody in public life, uh, you know, quote unquote authors a book, that they didn't write it and everybody looks the other way as, as if that's not significant at all, right? I mean, it is, it, it is now accepted practice. It is accepted practice, and you would hear a historian say, well, well, you know, Ulysses Grant's memoirs were actually written by Mark Twain, which they were. But if you read his memoirs, the book discusses the fact that they're actually written by Mark Twain. So the, 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 it, in the past, politicians had ghostwriters but admitted it. Now politicians deny it, and other cele- Hollywood celebrities, too, deny having ghostwriters. There's nothing Nothing at all wrong with having a ghostwriter. It's perfectly respectable as long as you are honest about it. And John McCain is, if you're starting to think, well, of course, all celebrities mm-hmm. always lie about this. John McCain never lied about it. The, the name of the actual author was on the cover of all of his books. There are a handful of politicians and celebrities who put the actual author's name on the cover of the book. So it can be done in an honorable way. And my enduring question, you'll see the details in today's Tuesday morning quarterback, is why do book reviewers cooperate with this fiction? All it does is debase the written word. And where we are right now in our culture, more debasement of the written word is not what we're really calling out for, is it? Now, I assume that Bill Clinton didn't write much of that novel, but uh, until I read your piece, I, I, I assumed that James Patterson wrote it. And the question I had in my mind was, why the hell would James Patterson, who's a very successful novelist, why would he do this? Why would he, you know, debase himself by, you know, throwing in an obviously fake co-writer? But you're saying that neither one of them wrote this book? I, I linked to a hilarious Washington Post piece oh. by the by the writer Karen Heller about how James Patterson stopped writing the books that he signs years ago. He's a small industry right now, and as and as I say, it's it's just a silly beach reading book, book in quotation marks, but it represents something disturbing, and that is people who are important in public life lying about what they are. And lying about what you do is dishonorable. Nobody who's honorable claims to be the author of something that's written 
by somebody else. Right, it, and it, it's a fraud. You know, a few years ago, I, I, I used to be a big Tom Clancy fan in the beginning until it became obvious that Tom Clancy wasn't writing the stuff anymore. And for a while it was, you know, they had some a weird formulation on, on the cover. But what really tipped me off was, you know, having read, you know, some of the books which I had enjoyed, picking up one of the books, I can't remember which one it was, I, I could come up with a title, but, and excuse my language here, but it was complete shit. And I actually was laughing out loud because the writing was so bad. And it was at that point I realized Tom Clancy's no longer writing Tom Clancy books, which is, you know, and I'm glad you're, you're putting this up because this is just basically a fraud. You know, people buy a book because of the name, because you've read something the person has written and you have some, you know, semi-literate hack toad who's writing for you instead. You know, in any other business, this would be bait and switch. It would be it would be a fraudulent transaction. Yeah, and every time the publishing world commits another fraud, the result is the debasement of the written word and the devaluing of books. And that is a terrible development for our culture. Okay, you know, uh, Scott Pruitt is back in the column. Now, given the fact that we're living our our politics in dog years, it seems like forever ago that Scott Pruitt vanished from, uh, you know, the from our Twitter feeds and everything. Um, But. Uh, why are you writing about Scott Pruitt? What, 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 uh, what, why would we bring Scott Pruitt back into the conversation? Well, he's gone, but if only he could be forgotten. Deta- <laughs> d- d- details keep coming out on how much money he wasted on his own ego. And you can say, okay, so he wasted this money. At least he's gone now. I'll, I'll go with you that far. But I think environmental law needs substantial reform. All of the big underlying statutes that control environmental law in the United States with the exception of the Clean Air Act amendments of 1991, all the rest of them are 45 to 50 years old. They were written for natural conditions that no longer exist. We need to revise and amend our environmental laws in part to make them more effective. You could you could you could mm-hmm. dec- decrease process costs and increase effectiveness, but you're never going to be, be able to get this done if clowns like Scott Pruitt discredit the very notion of revising environmental law, which is what is what happened during his regretfully uh, uh, two year and a half long tenure. Well, what, what I didn't understand about him, and I, I, I still, I guess, don't understand, is that this was not his first uh, trip to the rodeo. He had been an elected official for some time. And everything that happened to him, I think, was was fundamentally you know, self-inflicted because of his ego, that that he had a, a security detail, not because you know he had al-Qaeda uh, stalking him, but because he wanted an entourage. He wanted to be important. Um, why he thought he would get away with this? You know what? 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 What was it about Scott Pruitt that that he thought that what that the laws of political gravity in Washington D.C. would not catch up with him? Other than the most obvious, you know, explanation was hubris. Uh, it's surprising the number of politicians who exhibit that kind of hubris. Maybe it comes with the territory, but it's not just people of both Democrat and Republican Party arriving in Washington and thinking, I'm a big man. The rules don't apply to me. And of course, it always turns out the rules will apply to you. It's the rules are going to turn out to apply to Donald Trump. But you, you'll also see it at the urban level. People get elected mayor. And, and that one, one reason we think so many one reason so many mayors are in prison in the United States is people get elected and think, I'm the big man, I'm in charge now, I can steal and no one will ever catch me. And guess what? They all get caught. So why people don't realize this, I don't understand. So you drive an Acura. I learned, I learned this today. You're an Acura and you're a satisfied customer. 
So with this, the section in TMQ, here's your new SUV, Satan. The red metallic finish looks great with your robe. <laughs> I've always been proud of the TMQ subheads. Um, yes, I am a happy Acura. I'm very, very happy with my Acura. Uh, it's a great car and it's very reliable. But Acura is now advertising its new RDX, which is probably a good car. I haven't driven one, but but Satan drives one because the music that plays underneath the ad is Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, which is Satan boasting about how he's corrupted humanity. Um, <laughs> so, so you're the bad boy now. Uh, I mean, yeah, is, 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 is there part of you that thinks, I mean, isn't that part of it? Just like, you know, did you, by the way, ever see that, uh, that uh, free beacon edit, um, just edit YouTube video of Cory Booker saying, I am Spartacus with, uh, with George Costanza saying, I am the bad boy. Now I am the bad boy. Well, so. So, so now you're, so now you're driving Satan's car. I don't know what car Spartacus endorses. Maybe I'll buy that next. <laughs> I was looking for your subhead. My my favorite little tidbit. It's only it's only one line in the piece. It's the um, message embedded in the score. Oh yeah, uh, message embedded in football score. Small college action Saturday. Oh, <laughs> in small college action, it was hope forty one defiance zero. So that that gave me some. Uh, Hope for the future. Yeah. Hope versus defiance. Right. That and was hope, pretty that was pretty good. Hope shut out defiance. It was pretty good. Yeah. So so you know, everybody wants to know. You you watch a lot of football on Sundays. How does Greg Easterbrook watch all of those games on Sunday? Charlie, How do you that, watch the NFL? That's a trade secret. My column <laughs> it, when you watch a magician do his work, it, it looks like things are appearing out of thin air. My column gives the the illusion that I saw every play of every game. And I'm not telling you how I do it. But it is possible these days to to do this. Okay. It now is- I be as you pointed out uh, on the Weekly Standard podcast, we we have to obsess about the Green Bay Packers. Uh, but you also uh, talk about what the heck is wrong with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So let, let's spend a little time talking about uh, what is ailing the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, there, uh, something's been ailing them for a while because it wasn't just that they failed to defeat the Cleveland Browns and that they, they played for five quarters and they still couldn't defeat them. It wasn't just that they played one crummy game that could happen to anybody. I think they went into the season with the whole Le'Veon Bell thing unresolved. This is second consecutive year they've had that problem. Well-run teams get problems like this fixed before the season starts, and they didn't fix the problem. You look back to how they played in the playoffs last year, they were terrible. They got clobbered on their home field by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Mm. This The year before that, they played a terrible playoff game at New England. This team looks something something's out of sync there. It's not just they played one bad game. There's some kind of long-term problem with the Steelers that needs to get fixed if they're going to go anywhere this year. So what was the what what was the worst play of the you 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 have the the ugliest play of the weekend? Oh, I'll have to use my scanner to remember what I thought the ugliest. No, I see that's that's the problem when you when you write something this long. I'm I'm actually paging through here because you you have the prettiest play of the weekend, uh the hidden play of the week, the ugly plays of the week. I'll give you a hint here. Whose offensive line is worse, the Bills or the Seahawks? Well, yes, and I say because the Seahawks are a serious team and the Bills are not, we have to we have <laughs> to name the Seahawks as having the worst offensive line. Oh, my gosh, they were terrible against the Broncos. The Broncos are a team that emphasizes pass rush, but 
key, key ugly play of the weekend, fourth quarter. The game is a, a field goal game. Third down, Russell Wilson gets sacked. The right tackle of the Seattle Seahawks basically just kind of waved at Von Miller. He certainly didn't seem to want to make any kind of physical contact with him and then laid down on the ground and watched his quarterback get sacked. It's, it, it, it was pretty bad. Yeah, there are going to be some really, really ugly replays uh, during the session. You pointed out the, you know, that there were some, you know, some bad offensive line up, you know, play. But going back to the Packers, the the O line for the Packers really didn't look good in the first half. The uh, the Cleo Mack interception touchdown came on a three man rush. That was about as ugly as it gets. But uh, but they they made adjustments in the second half and they were able to they were able to turn around. But Khalil Mack, um, I, you know. It, even in the losing effort, didn't he really um, validate the amount of money that the, that the Chicago Bears paid out for him? Well, that's just one game. You know, I know John, John, John Gruden said over the summer, you look at the Oakland defense, it wasn't that good last year with Khalil Mack. You look at last year's film of Khalil Mack, he wasn't that good. Maybe he's now fired up and he'll play to his potential, which is very high, but the, 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 the performance of the Packers offensive line, poor in the first half, good in the second half, points to another thing about comebacks. At halftime, the Green Bay Packers seemed completely defeated, right? Mm-hmm. But there, there was just as much time left in the game as the Bears had used in getting ahead. And if you thought, well, the first half is, uh, you know, we're all going to count the first half. Okay, the game's over. But the game wasn't over. The Packers had an equal amount of time to stage a comeback. And by playing better in the second half, they staged a comeback. Okay, so this is our first uh, Tuesday morning quarterback of the season. We have to mark this off. So, Greg Easterbrook, what are you what are you predicting for the Super Bowl? I would say the Super Bowl, but I forget which number it is. I've, I've, I've completely lost track of all that. Uh, I, I, before the season began, I predicted Houston versus New Orleans and Mm. both those teams lost their first game. I am (laughs) doubling down. I am still (laughs) forecasting Houston versus New Orleans. And if if that doesn't work out, I'll come up with some really flimsy excuse to change it. Okay. That's, that is an edgy prediction and we will, we'll, we'll update that in a, in a, in a few weeks. Uh, by the way, uh, Greg, here's, here's something that I think that uh, you might find. And I think most of our you know listeners might find very, very uh, handy. The daily standard podcast has a new, uh, advertiser. It, you know, a lot of words have been used to describe the current state of the country. You know, we've been talking about the nervous breakdown that we're going through. Um, we have a new partner, Calm the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. By the way, what a, what a, what a sign of the times that, that, that this is, is just taking off, incredibly popular. Calm gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, more mindful life. Just five minutes of calm can change your whole day. If you go to calm.com slash standard, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, focus, and relationships, including a brand new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. They actually have sleep stories. They're like bedtime stories for grownups, and I am not too proud to tell you that I find them pretty helpful. So for a limited time, the Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash standard. That is calm.com slash 
standard. Greg, it is great to talk with you. It is great to be back in the NFL season. It is great to be able to think about anything other than the circus that's going on on our social media feeds, and I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks again, Greg. Great to talk to you, Charlie. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.